So once again, our sermon today, our title is The Three C's, okay? The Three C's. C's this way, amen. Uh, The Three C's. So my sermon in a sentence, the closer you follow Jesus reveals how committed you are to his mission, the gospel, and his church, the community. Okay, I want to say it again. The closer you follow Jesus reveals how committed you are to his mission, and his church, okay? So that's his gospel and his community. So you'll notice in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verse 7 through 12, there is a lot going on. There is a lot, a lot of stuff going on. You really get this kind of fast pace, like motion picture, if you would, of Jesus really just walking by the sea, and you can really tell that his ministry is exploding. And the, the gospel here, they really go painstakingly through pen and paper to let you know that what is happening is a major shift. Because if you remember, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He shows up outside of Galilee. He's over by the Jordan River. And it says what? That people from all of Judea, which remember is that northern part of Israel, were coming out to John to see what he was doing. Okay, so from just one direction, you understand that? So whenever Mark here is laying down how many people are coming to him, he grabs from every corner of the compass. He grabs from every area, just showing us geographically that Jesus' ministry far far surpasses John's ministry. Because we always have to remember, every prophet in the Word of God is less than Jesus. Every person in the Word of God is less than Jesus. There is no one greater than Jesus. We have to remember that. We have to always remember that, that everybody else you're seeing in Scripture, they are sinners in the hands of a mighty God who uses them in spite of themselves. But Jesus is the sinless God who is using his power in full display, so he's gathering people to himself. And the crowd is growing. And I love this because this is the crowd. That's that first C. This is the crowd you are seeing. This is the group of people who are coming to Jesus, asking themselves this question, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? That is what the crowd does in our churches. That is what the crowd does in our culture. What can you do for me? Perform for me, Jesus. And you get this, why? Because the text. What does the text say? The text says that John, that, I mean, that Jesus literally tells the disciples to have a boat ready. I don't know if you caught that, but literally they're pulling a boat along the shore because guess what? The crowd is so big that they are going to crush him. They are pressing so heavily on him to grab a hold of him. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but one of the first ever celebrities to really break barriers in our nation, and it wasn't, you know, some of y'all are thinking about Taylor Swift. I know T-Swift had a big weekend with her new album, right? Uh, not talking about her, but one of the first people to really break the threshold as far as massive celebrity was Elvis Presley. And if you really think about Elvis Presley during those moments, the amount of people who thronged to him, who literally would turn over things to get to him, that they were just mesmerized trying to lay hands on him. To think about that type of movement times 20 in this moment. That they were pressing on Jesus because guess what? They were sick and in need and they had heard rumors that if you just touch him, you can be healed. If you just get near him, if you just grab the hem of his garment... So the crowd is pressing on Jesus for what reason? What can you do for me? See, there are three C's, there are three groups of people that come to the church today. There is the crowd who they come to church thinking, what can your church do for me? What can Jesus do for me? 
I don't want to come to give anything. I want to come to get everything. It's this consumer mentality that you will go to the church that best suits your needs and best checks all the boxes. And God forbid you go to church that God wants you to dwell at. And so you see this in the text here. that This crowd is pressing, pressing on Jesus to get something from him, not to give something to him. They're looking to take, not to give. They're looking to take, not to give. This is the crowd pressing on Jesus. And I love this. It says right here, he says, there were also those with demons. There were demoniacs among them. And I love this. Why? Because James tells us, I don't know if you caught this or not in the New Testament, but it says in James uh, chapter uh, number 2, verse number 19, you believe there is a God, you believe God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons of hell believe there is a God and they shudder. But let me tell you this, demons will not be in heaven. So demons, you could arguably say, they know who God is, they know everything about God, but yet they don't have faith in God. That is why they are demons, that's why they got cast down, because guess what, even the demons of hell believe there is a God. And our culture here in the South, our culture here in Kentucky, is saturated with people who believe there is a good Lord, and believe He is good, and believe you should pray for every meal. But I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, there is thousands of people who believe in that version of Christianity, and they have just signed their own bus ticket to hell. Because that is not biblical Christianity. Just to believe there is a God and to know there is a God, that's deism. Is to think there is a God out there, there's a God who exists, that's deism. It's a fancy theological term of saying there is a God that exists. We as Christians do not believe there is just a God that exists. We believe there is only one God who exists. And we believe that God expresses himself through the trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we believe that he is not a far-off God, but he's a near God who came to dwell with us and be born through a virgin and live a perfect life and a down old rugged cross at Calvary's Hill to take our sins on himself so that we could be back in relationship with the Father. That's the God we believe in. That's the story we believe in. That's what we're banking everything on. So you cannot just believe there is a God and get to heaven. Not everybody is going to heaven, ladies and gentlemen. Because it's just the truth of Scripture. Because even the demons of hell, they believe. And they shudder at his name. But guess what? They didn't have a relationship. You see, the crowd knows who Jesus is, but Jesus doesn't know the crowd. They know who Jesus is. They're aware of his fame. They're aware, they're aware of what he does. But they're not, they don't know him on a personal level. They don't truly, truly know him. They want to get something from him instead of them being used by him, you could say. This is the crowd pressing on Jesus. And I love this here. They, the demons cry out, you are the son of God. You're the son of man. Like, you literally are the one who you say you are. And Jesus says, silence them. Because I don't want them to speak about this. Why? Because you need to understand here, the crowd is coming to him, not for who he is, but for what he does. Let me ask you that question, church. Are you here today because of who he is or because of what he's done for you? Think about that. Think about that. that the, the thing that should lead our worship is not what God has done for us on a personal level, but who Jesus is on an eternal level. That's what changes everything. You might be like, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? We are to praise the Lord for what he's done for us. No, it's only because of who Jesus is that he has done great things for us. Does that make sense? It's only because of who he is that he does it. It's only because who God is that we worship him. That's why we say God is love, because God defines what love is. So we worship him, not because he's loving, but because he's God. And he's a God who does love us. That makes sense? That's why we worship him. And so our first C is you have the crowd pressing on Jesus. 
The crowd wants Jesus, and they want him for what? What he can do. They want signs. They want miracles. Dance for me, Jesus. Perform for me, Jesus. Do what I want you to do, Jesus. That's their version of Jesus. I love how this uh, old, old theologian, his name, his name is Wilbur Ress. I don't know about you, that's top five baby names. Wilbur, amen? Charlotte's Web fans out there? Uh, Jake and Brittany, write that down, Wilbur. Uh, you know, Wilbur, think about that name. What a strong name. He wrote this poem. It's entitled, $3 Worth of God. Listen to this. This is so good. $3 Worth of God. He went to a store. It says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk for a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want, this is, listen to this line, I want the warmth of the womb, but not a new birth. I want pound of the eternal in a paper stack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Isn't that just strong language there? He says, I don't want enough God that makes me love my neighbor as myself. I don't want enough God. I don't, you can keep that God. I don't want to be working with the migrants who are there trying to make an honest living to support their families. I don't want to work with those people. I want enough God just to make me feel good about myself. I don't want enough God who's going to take me as myself. You see, all of us in here, you might not have a $3 God, but you've probably got a $5 God, $6 God. You've got a God who you think, I want that God, not this God. And let me remind you of this. Let me remind you of this, church. Anytime we take this God in the New Testament, in the Bible, and we make him into our version of him, we have not made, we are not worshiping the God of the Bible. We're worshiping the God of our own imaginations. And this is what's on full display in our culture. Well, that might be your God, but that's not my God. Let me tell you something. If your God doesn't match up with this God, then you don't have a God. You've got an idol. Because that's not the God in the Bible. And the God of the Bible has certain things he does, certain characteristics. He has things about him that are very, very true in Scripture. And the culture is using things in the Bible to say, this is what God says, and that's not what God says. It's not what God does. So that's what the crowd does. They want just $3 worth of God. And then in Mark chapter 3, verse number 13, look what it says here. It says, he went out to the mountain and called to those whom he desired. I love how Mark used that term. They came to him and he anointed, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. Simon, who was named, given the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, who was also called uh, the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Theodos and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So you take this call, and you remember this is kind of like the second time we've kind of heard these names before. And if you were to do a lot of biblical research, if you take Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, and John's account, and really look at the list of disciples, you'll see that the list kind of changes order. You'll see that the names in the list even change. You'll see that some, some of the names are completely different than other names. And I want you to understand this. The names in the text, there are 12 names listed. And of those 12 names, usually the order of Peter, James, and John does not change. Usually whenever the disciples are listed, it's always Peter, James, and John in close proximity. And the reason why is because even among the 12 group, a small group, even among the 12 disciples, Jesus spent a majority of his time with Peter, James, and John. You think about it. Peter, James, and John were the one who were at the Mount of Transfiguration. Y'all remember this? 
They were at the Mount of Transfiguration. They got to see Jesus change right before their eyes. Peter, James, and John were, guess what? Were the ones who were at the Garden of Gethsemane. They went further in than anybody else did. Why? Because Jesus said, pray with me, stay awake, and be watchful. Why? Because my hour is near. He wanted his close close friends to be there. And of course, they fell asleep because they were on daylight savings time. Amen. Uh, they passed the leg out. Um, and so do understand that this inner circle here is very, very evident in Scripture. You think about the tomb. It's Peter and who? John. Remember John? The one who ran faster than Peter, right? Apollo Creed and, you know, Sylvester Stallone, you know what I'm saying? Rocky Balboa running down the beach. I mean, it, do understand that this whole meaning of this is to show you that, hey, Peter, James, and John have a lot of importance. Because I guarantee you, the rest of those names, you probably don't really remember. Take a good look, ladies and gentlemen. A majority of those names, of the eight, of the nine that are left, only one of them probably is more popular than the other three, and that's Judas Iscariot. He is always listed last, usually, because he was a betrayer. The other names, the other eight names, you probably wouldn't even, if I passed out a Bible quiz, you probably couldn't name them. Don't, don't look at me. I can't pronounce some of them, amen. But here's what I'll say to highlight this. Their names were not remembered, and their deeds were probably not noted. They don't dominate the book of Acts like Peter does. They don't write the letters to the early church like Paul does. But yet, me and you are here today because guess what? They did the task. They did the task. Nobody has statues carved of them. Nobody has tattoos of them on their arm. You know, yeah, Nathaniel. Like, nobody does that. Yeah, Bartholomew, he's my favorite. Nobody's like, what? I mean, nobody does that. But they did the task. They weren't celebrated, but guess what? They were remembered. And they did the task. But I want to focus in on not just the names. I want to focus in on what happens on before the names. Because the text here is very, 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 very plain what Jesus does. Jesus goes up on a mountain. He goes up on a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And it's actually, here's what's really, really cool. If you were to go to Galilee to this day, if you were to go to the Sea of Galilee, if you were to stand and look all around that sea, guess what you would see? You would see several hilltops all around the area of Galilee. And all those hilltops are overlooking that, that sea. So it's pretty crazy is if you were to get on a, you were to get on a, not a, that'd be a long boat, amen. If you were to get on a plane and fly to Israel and get off on the, get off on the plane and go, you could stand on probably one of the peaks that Jesus had this conversation with these men at. Isn't it mind-blowing? You could stand probably where he probably called the 12 to himself. I love how Mark uses that term. He says, he called to them those who he desired. He called to those the ones he wanted to be with him. And why did he call them? I love that. It says in the text, he called them because he wanted them to be with him and he wanted to send them out. He called them, why? Because he wanted to be with them and he wanted to send them out. That's exactly what the text says. That's the order of operations here. And more than anything, though, I want you to notice this. There's a wink here to the Old Testament. I guarantee you, if you're like me, you missed it. When I'm reading the text, like I'll go back and I'll read it like several, several times before I pick out a commentary, before I pick out a study Bible, just reading it, thinking, hey, what does the text say? What does the text say? And I'll make a lot of notes. And then I'll pick up a commentary and I'll be like, you're an idiot, Nick. Why do you see that? Amen. Uh, like, why do you notice that? Uh, because that's what happens. Like some old got dead guy's like, hey, you missed this. I'm like, yeah, I did. Uh, because it's crazy. Because look what happens here. It's really powerful here. There's a wink here. It's very subtle, though. This echoes Genesis. It really does echo Genesis. You're like, what do you mean by that? It echoes Genesis because what did Adam do? Adam called 
the animals to himself, and he named them. You get this kind of a creation type thing where God is doing a new thing and he's calling people to himself and he's naming them. He's starting a new thing, you could say. It's a very subtle, very subtle thing. I don't want you to go like, you're saying we're animals? Do not ride that train, amen. Let that train of thought just go on. I'm just saying you have a very, very cool wink of like some type of Genesis revelation where he's saying, guess what, I'm doing a new thing. He called to them, he named them, he's showing authority. He's showing authority in a very special way. He's changing their name here in a sense. He's saying a name that's going to stick. Simon's name is going to be what? Peter. going to be Petros. going to be Small Rock. He's going to be somebody who, guess what? Right now you're a small rock, Peter, but guess what? Over time, I'm going to turn you into a big daddy rock. Amen? I'm going to turn you into a big rock over time. And so you get this idea that Jesus is really what, about what? Building relationship. But he's not just about building a community. He's about building relationship. And more than this, look what the text, look what happens here in the text. He's very strategic. He calls 12 of them. 12 of them. Once again, 12 echoes the Old Testament. Why? Because there were 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 tribes. You know, you think about Father Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know that Jacob has 12 sons. You probably know Joseph. You probably heard of Joseph's name. Who Joseph was the guy who, you know, he went and he, was, he got sold by his brothers into slavery. He went and worked underneath Potiphar's house. You know the story, amen. If you've never seen, uh, not the field of dreams, amen, but the, the dreams of Joseph. Never seen that, uh, Di- the, not Disney, uh, DreamWorks picture. You need to go watch it. It's really, really crazy good. And so understanding here that he had 12 sons, and those 12 sons were the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was a nation that was founded. So Jesus here is starting, you could say, kind of like a new people group, a new movement, a new community. He's not starting a new nation, but he is starting a new community inside the nation. And he picks 12 of these men. What's interesting, too, another interesting thing is all of the 12, except for one person, are from the close proximity of Galilee. I'll let you have a guess which one's not from Galilee. It's Judas. Judas is from a very lower part of the nation of Israel, very far journey, maybe like 150 miles away from the initial spot where all this is happening. And the text is doing this and showing you just how far out of the, out of the group Judas is. That he's not with the disciples, so to speak. So even winks in the scripture are saying, hey, guess what? He is different. He is not who you think he is. And you might be like, why does the text say the betrayer? Did Mark know? Did John Mark know? Did he talk to Peter? Who knew? No, you have to remember the timeline. This is written after the resurrection, right? Remember this? This is several years after the resurrection. So they've had time to reflect on this stuff, and they're writing it. And every time Jesus' name is mentioned, more, more likely than not, he always is followed by the betrayer. The betrayer. He's always remembered as that. Why? Because they remember he did that terrible deed. He betrayed Jesus in the garden. He kissed him on the cheek. We know that. The kiss of Judas, right? But why, 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 why did he call them? Why did he call these men? He called them to be with him. He called them to be disciples. He called them to be, be apprentices. He called them to be apostles. Now, I want you to understand something here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit, some of you are going to get confused, and I don't mean to confuse you, but it's very, very important to understand this. He called 12 disciples to be 12 apostles. Y'all follow me? You are called to be a disciple of Jesus. You are not called to be an apostle of Jesus. If you are here and you are saved, you are considered to be a disciple of Jesus. You follow me? There are 
Hundreds of billions of people who are disciples of Jesus. There is only 12 apostles. Only 12 apostles of the original. Now, you might be like, well, who else is an apostle? I take that back. There's, not, there's more than 12. There's, there's Paul. Paul is considered to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. You might be like, what's the qualifications of an apostle? An apostle has to be called by God and has to have seen the risen Lord. You follow me? So there, that's the qualifications for being an apostle. That's why Paul is considered to be an apostle, but me and you will never be an apostle. Why? Because Jesus intersected into Paul's life on the road to Damascus, knocked him off his high horse, and he saw him. And guess what? He saw the resurrected Christ. Therefore, Paul was made an apostle by Jesus himself. Jesus is not making apostles anymore because their teachings are sound, their traditions are set, that's our church history, that's the New Testament. There is no more canon being added to Scripture. There's no more books, there's no more apocryphas, there's no more letter of Thomas, there's none of that stuff. Guys, what you see in front of you is the apostles' teachings of the matter of Christianity handed down by the church itself. Why? Because that's what we believe. That's what we believe. There are no more apostles, but there are disciples. You would not believe how controversial that has happened. That's actually got me not to be able to preach at some churches, amen. I'm not lying to you because somebody lied to me. Somebody, somebody didn't lie to me. Somebody called me out and said, there's no more disciples. I promise you there are disciples. You're an apprentice, you're an apprentice of Jesus, right? You're supposed to be a learner of Jesus. So why did he call them to be with him? Because he wanted to change them. He wanted to change them relationally. He wanted to change them verbally, and he wanted to change them behaviorally. I'll say that again. He wanted to change them relationally. He wanted to change them verbally, and he wanted to change them behaviorally. And what do I mean by that? He wanted them to spend time with him. Three and a half years, if you do the math, they really calculated. Roughly three and a half years, he would spend every waking moment of his life with these men. He would get up with them. They would hang out during the day. They would do miracles, as in he would send them out to do missions. They would come back. He would spend every waking moment of the last three and a half years of his life investing in these 12 men. And he did that, why? Because he wanted them to learn, hey, look how I talk. Hey, look how I act. He spent time with them to teach them. Because you you know more than anybody, it is not through knowledge that you really change. It's through relationship that you change. It's through relationship that you change more often than not. It's by you spending time with other people that changes you. It changes you slowly but surely. I love what uh, James Edwards has to say on this. He says, The apostolic commission encompasses the three constructive elements of human experience in the relational, verbal, and behavioral. Discipleship is a matter of being with Jesus of speaking his message and of acting in his name by casting out demons and opposing evil. So that's what we're called to do. We're called to be with Jesus, and then Jesus sends us out. We're called to be with Jesus, and then Jesus sends us out. Now, what do I mean by that? People get confused by this. We think it goes, I'll do my task, and then I'll be about my relationship with Jesus. When you understand, the New Testament is not that way. The New Testament is what? We go from our relationship to our task. Does that make sense? Like we're not going from task to relationship. We are going from relationship to task. It's very different here. Because when you go from task to relationship, you automatically are driven by God loves me for what I do for him. You get to think in your brain, God God only loves me because of the things I do for him. You think task to relationship. When that's not true. 
You need to understand, Scripture is very, very apparent about this. God loves you because who He is, not because of who you are. If you, do any, if you don't do anything for Christ, He loves you the same. So if you always put tasks before relationship, you're always going to think, you only love me because you do this, because I do this, Lord. When you have to understand, we are people who believe in relationship and then task. And so what that means is, church, you serve the Lord out of relationship you have with the Lord. You serve the Lord. You show me somebody who loves their neighbor well. You show me somebody who's serving at church. You show me somebody who's laying themselves down to benefit others. I will show you somebody who has a strong relationship with the Lord. But you show me somebody who doesn't want to serve others. You show me somebody who doesn't have time for the church. You show me somebody who doesn't want to lay themselves down. I'll show you somebody who does not have a strong relationship with the Lord. Because we as people, we should ultimately become more like the people we are with. And if you spend more time with Jesus, you should be becoming more like Jesus. So what Emily needs, she doesn't need Nick to go spend time with a bunch of other great men. She needs Nick more than anything to spend time with the greatest man who is named Jesus. And so when I spend time with Jesus, I become a better man. When I spend time with Jesus, I become a better father. When I spend time with Jesus, I become a better husband. When I spend time with Jesus, I become a better worker. When I spend time with Jesus, I become the version of myself that God created me to be in Christ. I become the best version of myself when I spend time with Jesus. And you might be like, well, I don't, I don't need Jesus. I don't, I don't have anything to do with it. Then you're not becoming more like Jesus. You're becoming less like yourself. Because you were created to bear the image of God. And you are an image bearer. But it's marred. It's been marred by the fall. So you're the, your fullest potential when you're closest to Jesus. And I want you to understand something here. I, I, uh, Roger Palmer, a good friend of mine at Crossing, showed me this years ago, and it's so powerful. He says, as Christians, you are constantly in relationship with Jesus. You follow me here? If you are saved, you are constantly in relationship with Jesus. Once saved, always saved. In a right, right framework, that's a very, very good line to say theologically. All right? Very, very true. Very, very good. So understand that. So you are saved without a shadow of a doubt. Jesus has you. He's got you. He's, he's this right hand, right? When you are walking with Jesus, when you're in fellowship with him, then you are strong and united. That means reading the Bible. means doing the first things you did at first. You are memorizing scripture. You are praying. You're going to church. You're doing things God called you to do. You're in fellowship with him. Whenever you are desiring sin more than you're desiring God, what happens is you break fellowship and you try to go after things and you try to grab hold of other stuff. You follow me? But Jesus is always grabbing onto you. So you can break fellowship with Jesus, but you cannot break relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? You can break fellowship, but you cannot break relationship. You can be out of fellowship with God, for a season. Stay with me here, church. You're going to stay with me? Stay with me. Because I've met people, yeah, I've been out of fellowship about 10 years. They're, they're not saved. Look at me. They're not saved. Because part of the Holy Spirit living inside of me is when I do things I'm not supposed to do, I feel that pull. I feel that pull saying, this isn't right. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You were changed. You were made new. And eventually, guess what? The Holy Spirit of God wins out and brings me back into full fellowship with Him. And you might be like, what if you don't? What if you continually say, I'm not going to be in fellowship with God? I'll be honest with you. Scripture's pretty, got some pretty big, big things to say about that is God will discipline you. God will discipline you to bring you back in fellowship with him. And you might be like, what if I don't listen to the discipline? Then I want you to understand something here. Then God will kill you. 
God will kill you to bring you back home, you could say. Why? Because you're not in fellowship with him. Look, I don't think God would do that. Have you read the book of Jonah? Have you read the Bible and seen what God will do when people are not in fellowship with him? Because he is all about keeping us in fellowship with him. It's what God does over and over and over and over again in the Bible. So these people, our first C is the crowd. These men, guess what? They are the core. They are fully committed to Jesus. They're fully committed to Jesus, his mission, and his church. They're committed to Jesus, which means if they're committed to Jesus, they're committed to his mission, which is the gospel, and they're committed to his church, which is his people. Let me tell you this. Look at me. Look at me. I love you enough to tell you this. If you do not want to gather with God's people here, then what makes you think you want to gather with God's people there? If you don't want to gather with God's people here, why would you want to be with God's people there? Some of y'all are going to think heaven's in. Got these soundproof rooms of Church of Christ, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostals. You walk by and the Pentecostals, hey! You're like, man, they're too loud for me. You walk by the Church of Christ, there's no organs, no music. Everybody's singing, you're like, ah, oh, that's all right. Then you walk by the Baptist, we're all, mm. uh, like, yeah, I'm here. That's my section, Jesus. That's where I belong. No, the Bible says what? Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. There will not be a Baptist section. There will not be a Catholic section. There will not be a Church of Christ section. There will not be a Methodist section. There will be the redeemed bride of the Lamb. Of every tribe, nation, color, and tongue. That's what the Bible says. So the core, guess what? They are sold out to Jesus, his mission, and his church. They're sold out. That's what the core is. I know some of you right now, I'm the core. Don't be so fast. Don't be so fast, church. Because the crowd is just interested in what Jesus can do for them. The core is fully committed to Jesus. The best way I know to describe this core, it's about like a uh, uh, bacon, cheese, and egg biscuit. Amen. Bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. What do I mean by that is the cow and the chicken, they were involved, but the pig was committed. Some of y'all get that in a couple weeks. Amen. The chicken and the cow were involved, but the pig, guess what? He was committed. He gave his life for it. You saying God wants me to give my life to, to, to his church, to his message? Absolutely. Look at me, guys. There is no organization on the planet that has been deemed by God himself to be his arms, his hands, and his feet, and his body besides the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a nonprofit. There's not anything out there that's more important than his church. As far as an organization who's been blessed by God to do his work in the community. That's it. Pastor Nick, you said there's a third C. I'm glad you asked. Glad you asked. There's a third C. There's the crowd. There's the core. And then right in the middle of them, there's the congregation. Now, what do I mean by the congregation? You see, the congregation, you might find yourself, well, I'm in the congregation, but you might be in the congregation, but not of the congregation. Because you understand something. The congregation, what do I mean by that? They're interested in Jesus. They might will help with his mission. And they might go to church when it's convenient for them. They're interested in Jesus. Hey, Jesus is pretty, pretty cool guy. You know, six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus, I could be down with him. 
Someone interested in him, but not interested enough in him, not interested enough in him to share the gospel. Not interested enough in him to go to church when they're supposed to. You see, they're interested in Jesus. They like the whole Jesus thing. They like the whole, hey, be a good person thing. But when it comes down to laying their life down for the king of glory, they say, I don't want to do that. You lost me at full, 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 full in on Jesus. You lost me at that. When the Bible says you're either with him or you're against him. There is no such thing as lukewarm Christianity. I love what uh, Jesus says to that church at Laodicea. He said, you are like lukewarm water in my mouth. He says, you make me sick. You make me spit you out. There is no fence riders in the kingdom of God. There's no people who could just be like, well, I'm just halfway, you know, in or out. Either committed, you're in the congregation, or you're in the crowd. You're the core congregation or the crowd. Which one are you? So I can really boil it down to this. Is what kind of disciple are you? Are you a disciple of Jesus, saying I'm going to do things Jesus' way? Follow me here, you're going to get lost. Or are you a disciple of religion, who says I'm going to do things all these ways? Or are you a disciple of the world, saying I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, and if Jesus is that, hey, it sounds good to me in the moment. Because make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, you are a disciple. You're the disciple of Jesus, you're a disciple, a disciple of religion, maybe politics, whatever that is you claim to have or worship, whatever your idol is, pick a, pick a choice. Or you're a disciple of the culture. I do what everybody else tells me to do. But let me remind you this as Christians, as people who say, we believe this book. To say we truly, truly believe this book, then we have to be about his message, which is the gospel. We have to be about his, that's his mission, right? We have to be about his community, which is his church. And we have to do good things. We have to love the Lord our God with all our strength, all the heart, the soul, and the mind, and we have to love our neighbors as ourselves. Which means, guess what? Not only do we have to do acts of mercy, but we have to oppress evil. And so we will not do that. We will not participate in those things. Because we have to be people that truly are committed to this. And you might be like, man, it costs too much. And some of you might be out there, well, I'm, I'm a member of the core and it hadn't cost me anything. Well, are you a member of the core? Because Christianity will cost you everything. It costs you laying down yourself, laying down your pride, laying down your finances, laying down your marriage, saying, this is not mine. These kids are not my kids. Do you not realize, church, that every breath going out of your nostrils right now is a loan that the gracious God has given you? All he has to do is change one molecule in your body and you, you die, just cold out. That every gift you have is a gift from God. Every fabric of DNA that makes up your skin right now is a gift from the Lord. And for him to ask us back, hey, would you commit to me? Would you be my people? Would you be different? Would you do things differently than the decaying culture? And when I say do things different, I don't mean we would be violent people. I mean we would be people who truly understand that what Jesus tells us to do changes people. Because it's a relationship that changes task, right? That our goal is to see people change relationally, verbally, and behaviorally. You'll notice behavior is the last thing that changes. Because I want to promise them, I'm not the man I want to be. I'm not. 
You know, sometimes I think I'm doing really well, and then me and Emily get in a fight, and my old self, he'd be stupid again, amen? And I got an elbow dropping. Man, I thought you was out. I thought you was done. And I'll say stuff, and I'm like, man, I thought I was past this. Then a couple of years go by, and guess what? That old sin will creep back up. You're like, man, I thought I killed that. Because we have to remember, getting saved happens in a moment, but becoming more like Jesus happens in a lifetime. Guys, it's a slow grind. You're going to have two steps forward and three steps back at a time. But I'm walking with the Lord, and He's carrying me. So I'm, My journey is forward. My journey is not backward, amen? And I know some people in Christianity, they have a hard time with that. They're thinking, well, you don't understand what I used to be like. Let me tell you something, brother. Let me tell you something, sister. There's a reason why the, the rearview mirror is so small, because we ain't going that way. We're looking at the windshield. We're going forward. And somebody be like, hey, I know what you used to be like. Can you tell him real quick? That's what I used to be like. But he's dead in Christ. He's dead in Christ. And I've been raised anew in Christ. I'm dead to myself. I'm dead to sin. I've been made alive. So I'm going to ask you that. What C group are you in? What boarding pass do you have? Amen. What group are you in? You in the, the crowd? Who you came here today? I just want Jesus to give me something. Jesus, give me the money. Live your best life now, amen, with the smiling guy down in Texas. Oh, yeah, some of y'all think I don't know. What can Jesus do for you? Are you the congregation? You're like, you know what, Pastor Nick, you take this stuff too seriously. Like, you act like people are dying and going to hell. It's because they are. Pastor Nick, you act like this stuff matters because it does. Pastor Nick, you act like people are watching us because they are. I love what D.L. Moody once said. He said, 98% of people will never read the Bible, but 100% of people will read you. How very true that is. 100% of the people around you will read you. And what are they reading about? What's the gospel according to you? Do you really believe this stuff? I'm a church, ain't I? Coming to an air-conditioned, heating building, sitting in a pew, listening to me squawk for 45 minutes, that's easy. It's easy. You know, it's hard when your best friend betrays you and you've got to be the bigger person. You know, it's hard when your spouse says something and you want to just let them have it. hard is living this stuff. But I'll tell you what I've noticed. Over time, the more time I spend with Jesus, the more my language changes. The more time I spend with Jesus, the more my behavior changes. And so maybe the next time you can really be honest and tell yourself the truth is maybe what you need is you, you need some Jesus. You need to spend some time with the King of Kings and Prince of Peace. Because you all jacked up. Because I will tell you this, nobody who ever came in contact with Jesus left unchanged. Every single person that he comes in contact with in Scripture, they, they leave changed. They either leave for him or they leave against him. You know, look at that in Scripture. They either leave thinking he's legit or they leave thinking he's crazy. Young rich ruler comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I've kept all the commandments. He was perfect. 
Jesus said, go home and sell everything. He said, bro, I can't do that. I just got the PS5, amen, I can't get rid of it. He said, I can't be doing that. He said he walked away sad. Why? Because he knew that Jesus put too high of a task. Now, what that's saying, what that's not saying, that's not saying God calls all of, us for, all of us to sell everything. But it is telling us this. Whenever you do come to Christ, he exposes the idols you're clinging hold of. For that man, his riches were as God. And Jesus said, go home and sell them. So that you may gain eternal life by coming and following me. But he wouldn't do it. Because the price was too heavy price is too heavy but I'll tell you this as I close today I'll probably get the quote wrong I might have to correct it later but I believe it's right uh, he is no fool who gives what he has to he who cannot lose it I'll say that again he is no fool who gives what he has to he who doesn't, cannot lose it everything you have it's going to have in two places guys the garage sale or the thrift store. Everything. But only what's done what's only what's done for Christ will last. You get to heaven, they can be like, hey, what's your 401k? Man, I had a meal. What about you? I had 250. Ain't gonna get fair. What kind of car did you drive? Lexus. What do you drive? O3 Corolla. I want to get to heaven, and the prettiest thing about us is how many people are there because they look at you and say, hey, it's because of you. It's because you shared the gospel with me. It's because you pushed our friendship to that awkward moment where it was really awkward, but you, you cared enough about me to care about my soul. I want to be surprised who runs up to us in heaven and looks at you and says, it's because of you. Because you told me about Jesus. This week, I, I had a strong, strong urge from the Spirit of God. I'm not going to say God spoke to me because God's never audibly spoke to me, but he, he really, like, pressuring me. I could feel the Holy Spirit grab my spine, you know what I'm saying? And, like, push pressure, like, do something. And at first, I thought it was bench 350. I was like, here it is, baby. <laughs> that wasn't it. God was putting pressure on my back, and he talked to this man. And it was a friend of mine I go to the gym with him all the time. I was like, man, I was like, I can't do it. It's awkward. We got our ear, earbuds in, which in the gym language means do not talk to me. And so we had our, we were working out, doing this or that, and I kept feeling God saying, talk to him, talk to him, talk to him. And I was like, I'm not doing it. So I go in the stretching room, and he's in there. I was like, come on, Lord. Come on, man. Come on. And so I just begin the conversation. I said, hey, man, I, I, know, you, I know you probably know. Like, he knows I'm a pastor. He sees my stuff on social media. He's probably going to say something about this, and I'll talk to him next time. I was like, man, I just, I got to ask you, like, are you, are you a Christian? Like, do you believe in the gospel? Like, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I, I was like jumbled at church. It's like, blah, 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 blah. like word vomit. <laughs> he was kind of like, what do you say? And I talked to him about it. And he literally, he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really, he told me, he said, I, I used to go to Mid-Continent. I was like, yeah, shut the front door. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I was actually going to do some ministry work, working with veterans. And he said, I put that behind me because I got so busy with life, kids, and my job. He said, I put that behind me. And, and like, this is the first time I've really thought about it, but you kind of, like, brought it up to my attention that, like, I should be doing something with that. Now, I would love to tell you, it always goes that way. Sometimes it does not go that way. Sometimes you get flipped off at Walmart. 
That just happens. Y'all laugh. I'm telling you, church, sometimes people look at you and say, it's none of your business. But it's those moments where you feel like you were the, the mouth of God, in a sense. I, don't take that and run with it. I'm like, oh, you're saying? Like, if, you know what I'm talking about, when you were in line with God, in a sense, where you felt like you actually did what he wanted you to do. And it's such a sweet feeling. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you feel like, oh, man. And you leave there smiling, and then something bad happens. You're like, like, it's the best. But I would love to tell you that I always say yes to the Lord, but there's a lot of days I feel that pressure can. And I said, no, 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 Lord. I'm late for work. No, Lord. I don't have time for that. No, Lord. This is too much. And it's in those moments I hurt myself more than I hate myself. Because what the Lord knows is I need that. He's trying to pull it away from me, and I keep holding on to it with my sin, with my flesh, saying, no, God, you don't understand. And God's saying, I promise it's going to be better. Just trust me. Have faith. Just trust me. And you see, if I was to really be honest with you, there are some weeks where I go from the crowd to the core to the congregation. It depends on the day. But who will you choose? What will you choose, church? You be dedicated and say, Lord, I want to be a core person. I want to believe this stuff. I want to share your message. I want to be among your people. 